Now, if you're the kind of people who read this sermon title before you come to worship, some of you might have gotten excited on your way today. Others might have chosen to stay home. Those of you who got excited thought, finally, it's back. You're hearkening to the days when preachers would get real exercised over that rock and roll music. Back to the day when the harder the people played the music, the harder the preachers preached against it. You remember the days when the preacher would illustrate their sermons with the evils, the dangers of the music and the rock stars who played it, those who were up to the devil's work. My guess is that those sermons were successful in helping mediocre musicians become multi-millionaires, giving them the attention they needed to become the rock stars they wanted to be. I don't know if you followed the latest career moves of some of those who worked hard to excite the younger generations back in the day, how it all worked out for them. The most devilish of the heavy metal era, are now in their 60s. They're forcing themselves back into face paint and tight leather jeans and are making a living by pitching diet, Dr. Pepper. (laughs) It looks like their deal with the devil has run out. But so that I don't totally disappoint you today, let me join hands with the old-time preachers and give you a word of warning. If you are in your 60s and considering putting on tight leather pants and starting a heavy metal band, don't. I don't know what God thinks about that, but I know how the rest of us feel. Don't do that. The rest of us, though, need not be so smug as to think that the devil and the rock star are easily distinguished. Turns out they aren't two separate people all the time. Often they're the same decent person. That's where the sermon title comes from. The and matters. Peter, the devil, and the rock star. According to Jesus, Peter was one and the same. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you Say that I am. Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, And blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound on heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. 
From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was a camp counselor, occasionally one of my campers would get in front of me and I would say to them, get behind me, Satan. And they never seemed to appreciate my biblical quotation. They, in their illiteracy, with their overly sensationalized minds, heard father of lies, lord of the underworld, or evil personified. So I'd have to explain to them that, that, that Satan, to be biblical about things, isn't in every case the prince of darkness or the antithesis of God. Satan in many biblical contexts is the tempter or the accuser. His work isn't so much to rule hell as it is to provoke on earth. He's the devil in the devil's advocate. In Job, it's Satan who is part of God's think tank who suggests that Job's fidelity to God is not based on his faithfulness but on his prosperity. And the way the devil has gotten his ideas by going to and fro on the earth, walking about in this land. He'd been out observing Job. Satan was present on earth and then present in God's counsel as Job's accuser. It's not that different than what Satan was up to in Matthew 4 when Jesus is tempted. Jesus has left his baptism, gone to the wilderness, goes up and fasts for 40 days. And while there, Satan appears to him and and he tempts him three times. The temptations all to do good things were about diverting Jesus' attention from God to himself or to Satan. Satan wanted Jesus to put his mind on earthly things rather than divine things. This is what the devil is up to. A friend of mine has observed that that The devil gets credit for all kinds of things that's probably undeserved and and most likely beneath him. 
He says he'll be in a church meeting and someone will come rushing in late and say, I'm sorry I'm late, I had to stop by and pick up something on the way. And when I pulled into the parking lot, the devil put somebody into the open parking space. I had to park all the way down the street, put me behind, and that's why I'm late. As if the devil has nothing better to do than inconvenience our lives. C.S. Lewis suggests that the devil is up to more than that. In his wonderful little book, The Screwtape Letters, he collects a coll- uh, this gathering of letters that are from Uncle Screwtape to, to Uncle Screwtape to his nephew Wormwood. His nephew is a demon in training. Screwtape is this wizened mentor, and he helps Wormwood figure out the best ways to trip up a Christian. The space that Wormwood is to work in is not parking lot spaces. It's the space between our ears. Face in our hearts. Uncle Screwtape suggests to Wormwood that distracting us can be a great step to bringing us away from God. Uncle Screwtape counsels. It is funny how mortals always picture us demons as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Clever. How much of our devilish behavior comes after we've neglected to remember, neglected to pray, neglected to read scripture, neglected to be with other Christians, neglected to seek the Spirit who can put us in a better place spiritually or physically, than we'd ever be able to put ourselves. Clever. Here's another tip from Uncle Screwtape to Wormwood. Make the new Christian doubt whether the first days of Christianity were perhaps not a little excessive. Talk to him about moderation in all things. If you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion, he tells his trainee nephew, is good for our demonic purposes. As good as no religion at all. And more amusing. Let's not let the dark forces off as great wonders of inconvenience, like they're after our parking places. Rather, let's be clear that it's the devil's job to convince us that we want just enough religion to keep us out of hell, but not so much that we'd set our minds fully on heavenly things, that we'd take up the cross. If you object that Jesus didn't spend his life with his head in the clouds, sequestered in some holy place, away from people and temptation, and therefore set fully on divine things, let me argue back. It was precisely Jesus' attention to humans that demonstrated his mind was set on divine things. 
Having our minds set on divine things is not to the exclusion of human need. And in our seeking after God, we are called to serve those in this world. What distinguishes our actions as to whether they are divine or human is what has motivated them, inspired them, given them purpose. That's where Peter, the rock star, almost got it right. He had figured out who Jesus is. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, but missed what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We're always at risk of getting the words right and the meaning wrong. Peter, the rock star, got the words right in the moment. You, Jesus, have been the one, are the one we've been waiting for, the one who has come to save us, save us from ourselves, save us from our oppressors, save us from our sins, save us from the gates of hell. You're the Messiah. Peter got those words right because he had gotten to know Jesus, he had heard the powerful teachings, witnessed the amazing healings, participated in the wondrous miracles. He had seen that this Messiah's mind and heart were heavenward as proved by his hands that were very earthy. Jesus showed that having his mind on divine things had nothing to do with ignoring human things. Having our minds on divine things has everything to do with seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And that's where Peter got the words right. But the meaning wrong. Peter wanted Jesus to be the Messiah the way he understood the Messiah as one who would defeat Rome and take back the temple. Jesus, however, was about something even bigger than that. He was here to defeat death, to defeat evil. He wasn't willing to defeat some for the sake of a generation or two, but defeat all evil for the sake of all Forever. We might question his method. We might question his timing. We might have suggestions about how he should have done it. Should do it. But every time we offer up something outside of the kingdom of God, Jesus has the same response. Get behind me, Satan. I've worked this thing out. And I'm going to save the way I'm going to save. Stop setting your minds on human things when divine things are the source of all hope. Don't just get the words right. Understand their meaning. If I'm going to be your Messiah, accept the way... I'll save. Peter wasn't the last one to be both rock star 
and devil. He wasn't the last one to have both the capacity to see Jesus as Lord and Savior and want to control what it meant to be Lord and Savior. I dare say there's some Peter in all of us who have been blessed enough to see Jesus as the Messiah. Because we human things tend to want to control everything. Even divine things. We do well to confess that we have the capacity to be both rock stars and Satan's. And then when we've acknowledged that, ask God to go about the work of resetting our minds. But when the time comes and Jesus asks us, who do you say that I am? We won't try to define how it is or how it should be. We'll simply say what we know. You're the Messiah. The Son of the living God. And leave it at that. Let's leave it at that.